All right, Jeremiah chapter 13, Jeremiah chapter 13. On Sunday, we covered Jeremiah chapter 12. We started Jeremiah 13, made it 11 verses in. I'll try to back up a little bit tonight to get everyone caught up. I'll utilize the uh, understand the context part from Explore the Bible, summer 2023, page 38, because they do a summary of really like seven chapters here. I'm going to not read all of it, just kind of get us to chapter 13. And then we'll start working on chapter 13 again. Um, we'll kind of review a little bit of like the first, uh, well, we'll, uh, we'll go over the outline that we kind of came up with for the chapter. Then we'll uh, look at those kind of first 11 verses, kind of review, and then see if we can finish uh, chapter 13 tonight. I don't know if we can, but we'll do our very best. All right, everybody ready? All right. So going back, if you want to look, look at, you can look at Jeremiah chapter 11 just to remind yourself of some things. In Jeremiah chapter 11, the Lord reminded his people of the covenant he made with their ancestors when he delivered them from Egypt. And you can look at that in Jeremiah chapter 11, I think verses 1 through 7. Sadly, their ancestors' disobedience brought God's judgment. I think you start reading about that in Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 8. Jeremiah's generation was repeating their ancestors' sins, and God warned judgment would come again. Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. And so we continue to see the cycle. Let's just remind ourselves over and over and over that the people in the past had done what? Disobeyed. The people in the present were disobeying. So no matter if it was the past generation or the present generation, and we know what the future generation does. Disobey. Now, the question, and, and the question would be theologically, and this is important, what is the difference between Israel and the church as far as our godliness or morality? I will argue none. Now, to say that will put you where in, in, the, in light of most evangelical churches today? They would say that's heretical. But isn't it interesting that say when you go to 1 Corinthians and Paul is rebuking and dealing with the sins in the church of Corinth, who does he use as an example to them? Israel, meaning that the, the sins of Israel were present where? And the church of Corinth. Meaning that we, you, we'll put it this way, clearly, and how does Paul reference the people at the church of Corinth? He does, he does he refer to them as lost people or saved people? I think we can agree he refers to them as saved. Meaning saved people can live just like what? The children of Israel did. Now, I know that now some will try to make some kind of counter argument, but I think we can pr- prove that somewhat. Well, I know we can prove it historically. I know we can prove it practically. And I think we can prove it textually. Now, many would disagree with that. So, But I will say this. Whether the Old Testament, whether the New Testament, God's people have one thing in common, and that is sin, 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 sin. Because whether in the Old Covenant or whether in the New Covenant, what is true is that those who believe in God still have what? A sinful nature. Now, in theory, we would hope that salvation would at least accomplish a couple of things. Make us think differently. And hopefully give us different desires. But the old desires are not eradicated. The old nature is not eradicated. And as long as the old nature is not eradicated, well, we can even say this, and we'll just stress this. 
I don't care what you say about the supposed changes that happens in the New Testament to a believer. Everyone can agree to this. Well, 98% of Christianity would agree to this. Even as a Christian, can Christians be perfect? Everyone seems to agree with that. And the minute you agree to that, then what would be the question you would have to ask? Why not? What would be the only answer to answer that question? We still have a sinful nature, and God's power is not either not sufficient to get us to perfection, or was never designed to get us to perfection. And if it wasn't designed to get us to perfection, then what was it designed to do? Get us to 50%? 60%? So how do Christians typically get around it? Well, Christians aren't perfect. It's not perfection, but direction. And somehow that makes, I don't know what that means, right? It's not perfection, but direction. What does it mean? Because God, what is God, does, God, does God's law demand direction or perfection? Exactly. So if you say, well, no, as a Christian, we just now have a different direction. What difference does that make? Because the law demands perfection. So you're still in a state of perpetual sin, meaning then, then that there's no difference. You can say all day long that there's a difference, but when it comes down to it, what are we? we look, we desire, we're fleshly, we're selfish. I mean, we, we can have bitterness, unforgiveness, all the things that we find in the world, we find where? In the church and in Christian homes. And so, I just, I cannot stress that enough because we have this weird idea that sometimes when we study Jeremiah, like, those people were so messed up. Sure, I'm glad we're not like them. But that's not the way it was, right? So they were sinning. And guess guess what? They were going to continue to sin. And guess what? After they came out of the Babylonian captivity, guess what they were going to do? Continue to sin. And guess what they did when Jesus came around? Guys, continue to sin, okay? And what are they doing today? Continue to sin, all right? So let's make sure we understand that, all right? Now in chapter 12, so that covers chapter 11, all right? Chapter 12, you can look at verses 1 through 4, which we we covered in Sunday school. Jeremiah struggled as he saw wicked people prosper. He called on the Lord to bring them down. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Uh, God was about to hand the Judeans over to their enemies and they would experience devastation, chapter 12, 5 through 13. Nevertheless, he held out the hope of restoration if his people returned to him, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Now, chapter 12 gives us, and we can just read it really quick, chapter 12, starting in verse, I think, 1, Jeremiah 12, 1. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments, Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all, the, are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Jeremiah does not understand how a righteous God can allow the unrighteous to prosper. Because you would think a righteous God would do what? That to the unrighteous. He would not let them prosper, Right? So we dealt with all of the philosophical and theological issues with that. We dealt with some ways to handle it. It's, um, I think the first part of Sunday school is not very good. Uh, then kind of when we, I kind of get past the, well, it's just one person here. What I get, how to get past that. And then, then we had someone walk in. So once I kind of get past all of the weirdness from Sunday school, then I think about midway through, 
I think then I, when I start breaking that down and I kind of create an outline with how to deal with that problem, I think that was worth going back and listening to. You can fast forward maybe the first 15 minutes, okay? But that part I thought was really good. Then we come to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. In chapter 13, God uses, I'm going to, now they, they say it singular, but I'm going to say it this way. In Jeremiah chapter 13, God uses object lessons, plural, or we could say parables, to convey his message of judgment through Jeremiah. Now, I'm not going to read anything else that they have here. So what we started doing is working through this. So if you have Jeremiah chapter 13 open, let's go through this quickly. Look at verses 1 through 11. Look at Jeremiah 13, 1 through 11. What object lesson do you see there? We can call it an object lesson or we can call it a parable. It's an object lesson of what object? It's a parable of what? It's the linen garment. It's the linen garment. Chapter 13, 1 through 11. Everybody see that? Okay, now i got to go through these quickly, okay? So next, verses 12 through 14. Now, there's no agreement in how the different commentaries handle this. We went against the commentaries. We called this, look at Jeremiah 13, verse 12. We called this the bottles, all right? Because look at verse 12. Therefore, thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, do we not certainly know that every... Bottle shall be filled with wine. So because bottle was referenced twice, that's what we went with. Others, commentaries do different things, all right? Look at verse 15. All right? What happens in verse 15? 15 and 16, I think. We call this the stumbling traveler because it says, Hear ye and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if you, and yeah, that's where we stopped, all right? So we call this the stumbling traveler, all right? That's 15 through 16. Then what do we have? See, did we have some more here? Yeah, 17 through 20, we refer to this as the flock because the flock is used twice here. 17 through 20. Some commentaries skip 17 through 20. They just act like it doesn't exist. I have no idea why, okay? That's weird to me, all right? So 17 through 20. Then 21, what do we have? The woman in labor. Everybody see that? Right? As a, see the last part of it, verse 21? As a woman in travail, all right? And then... 24 through 25, or no, 22 was skirts, right? Skirts is in verse 22. 23 is the Ethiopian and the leper. And then 24 through 25 is the chaff. That's the outline of the chapter. Okay, oh, did I add that? That was not in my original notes. Okay. And at 26 through 27, we will refer to that as nudity is what we refer to it as. All right. Okay. We'll go with that. We can change it if we want. All right. So let's go through this quickly. Make sure everybody's got it down. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 11 is first thing we have is the object lesson of the garment. Uh, the second thing we have is starting in, in my, now my uh, 
notes are not completely right, so correct me when I'm wrong. Verses 12 through 14, we have the bottles, right? Verses 15 through 16, we have the stumbling traveler. 17 through 20, the flock. 21, woman in labor. 22, the skirts. 23, the, the Ethiopian and the leper. 24 through 25 is the chaff. And then 26 and 27 is nudity. All right. That's the best we could come up with. We did it on the spot. Some of it because I already had an outline and we had two commentaries and we decided to go against the uh, commentaries. We, we decided on the spot that we're, we were smarter than the commentaries. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, we'll call them object lessons, sort of kind of as object lesson, parable. Yeah, there's di- different ways they're, they're utilized. We'll kind of see how each one works, all right? Okay, everybody ready for the first one? Okay, all right, here we go. Now, just when I pulled up my notes, I pulled up the original. So they, it's broken down like uh, I originally had it broken down, all right? But there we go. That's okay. We can change it on the spot, right? Yeah, I think so. All right, here we go. Jeremiah chapter 13. Let's start verse 1 through 11. We have to go through this quickly, and we, we, we won't be able to cover everything, but we'll see what we can do. All right, here we go. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord God unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord, and I put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, arise, go to Euphrates and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, arise, go to Euphrates, take the girdle from this, which I command thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates, digged and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. Right? Now that's a lot of like, what is going on? Right? I mean, that's a lot of, can, can we agree? Not only that, it's, it's kind of very different than all the other chapters that we've come to before this, right? It's all of a sudden now. But it's not uncommon if you read all the prophets because the prophets are constantly told to do what? Act out these kind of living parables, these object lessons. Now, after, so now we could ask ourselves again, we, we've talked about this. What is the, we talked about this on Sunday, but I, I, we almost have to talk about this. What are the positives and negatives of using object lessons in preaching and teaching? Okay. The positive is when you're, when you keep preaching the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over, people start like, whatever. And sometimes you'll be surprised, shocked that even though you've preached it a hundred times, you ask the question the hundred first time, and they don't remember the hundred times, and then you're baffled and perplexed and confused, like, how, what happened? An object lesson, hopefully, will kind of overcome that apathy, because now you're presenting the same information in a different way, and hopefully, what you're hoping is all of a sudden they'll go, oh, okay, give me a review question now. That's what you hope, okay, but... It doesn't always work. Okay, that's a positive. What's another? Okay, a lot of times in preaching theology and, and teaching, especially theology, the concepts can be very vague. 
And you're like, can't really grab onto it. An object lesson takes that theology and kind of encompasses it, takes the message and places it in a something tangible, something you are familiar with, something you know. Now, for them, they know the gar- they know Obviously, everyone he's telling this gar- about the garment, they understand the significance of the garment, right? So it, that's why a pastor would do that, all right? Was there another positive I gave? I think that was it. Then what are the negatives? Always the danger when you use an object lesson in preaching, or even if you use an illustration, is that everyone remembers... The object or the illustration, nobody remembers what the object or the illustration was about. And that is maddening, okay? Because sometimes you're like, oh, this is a good illustration. And then six years later, everybody remembers the story about people being stuck in the mud at Lake Kirby. Nobody can tell you what it was about. All right? And and there's lots of those times. where, And then you're like, oh. Why did I use that illustration, all right? Okay, what's another danger about object lessons or illustrations? Anybody? It just, you, just, you can just throw out if you think there could be another one. Okay, sometimes your object lesson, in many cases, you're, you think you've got this good object, but sooner or later, sometimes you may start losing, like, is it actually still connected to the object, right? Because it becomes about the object. It becomes not, like, even in the preacher's mind, like a lot of times a preacher will use an illustration or an object, and about the time he'll, he'll be like, what were we talking about? Like, because even he loses the, the plot, because all of a sudden it becomes about how to use the object, how to tell the illustration, and then you realize, is it still even connected? So, but in this case, why is Jeremiah perfectly okay to use all of these object lessons? God told him. So that now that just let's make sure this is not prescribing that every preacher should. This is re- describing what God told Jeremiah to do. But preachers use it as a, as a justification. And I'm not saying it's wrong to use it as a justification. Let's just make sure that we know these object lessons are what God wanted. When I come up with an object lesson or any other preacher, that's what we come up with. There's no proof that that's what God wanted or that it's even a good thing to do. And sometimes, guess what, as a preacher, you won't know if it's a good thing until after you've done it. And then you'll be like... Why? Then you're like hitting yourself. Why did I do that? Because you realize you messed it up. You realize, and, and then the whole thing falls apart. So we have to try to figure out what, I mean, the whole, the whole thing is weird. Put it on, take it off, put it, like, you know what, I'm going to go hide it and rock. Like, what's happening here? Well, we get a little bit of information here starting in verse 8, right? Because what happens in verse 8? Then the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thus saith the Lord, after this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Now, immediately, as a good Bible student, as a good Bible student, what should you do with that kind of information? Whenever you have an object lesson or a parable, what should you do with a verse like that as a good Bible student? From a hermeneutical, biblical, Bible study, a Bible interpretation principle. What should you do with that? Okay. Okay. 
It's telling you what to take from the story. Meaning, because so many times, what do we do with object lessons? We start trying to interpret this, and well, this could be this, and this could be this, and this could be this. And the next thing you know, we get so lost in trying to figure everything out that we do what? Miss the point. If the text tells you the point, make sure you get the point. Does that make sense? If a, if a parable offers you the explanation, don't be still arguing 30 years later about, well, this could represent this, and this could represent this, and what about this? And wait, I don't know what this works. What's the point? And, and many object lessons in parable, you, what you need to do is stop worrying, because, look, man, parables can be used to try to prove everything from purgatory to different levels of hell. To, I, mean, you, I mean, the parables have been used for everything. Okay, don't do that. You, what is your job whenever the Bible offers an object lesson or a parable? Your job is to do what? Ignore everything and figure out what is the main point. Once you have the main point, I got no problem you go back and try to, well, what about this and what could this mean? I got no problem. But, uh, but someone needs to be there to say, whoa, 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 what was the point of the parable? What was the point of the object lesson? What was the point? What was the point? And if you, if you forget the point, or if someone's arguing with you, and they don't know the main point, stop the argument and walk away. Because you're wasting your time. Because they're off, they've left the road of biblical hermeneutics, and now they're into wild speculating. Okay, just don't go there. So in here, what's the main point of the story? Well, no, God is going to mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. So in this case, if you think about it, what, what, what gets marred in the parable or the object lesson? The garment. So the garment would represent whom? Judah and Jerusalem, right? And what mar, what, who's going to mar it? God. Now, what does the word mar mean? How does the, does the NIV translate it mar? He's going to ruin their pride. Okay, look up the word mar in, in a, say the Blue Letter Bible app. Let's, let's find out what's the Hebrew word for mar. Let's, let's see. Let's make sure we get the, because if this is the main idea, then what's the, what's the key verse in this entire object lesson? That verse. You need to circle and memorize that verse, right? I, I cannot stress that enough. Like, everyone should just be trained to do that. Preachers will do what? Get caught up in all the other stuff, right? Because you can start telling all kinds of cool stories and, and make, and you know, we got to make sure we focus on that. What, what's the, uh, what does the Hebrew word mean? Do you need me to get it? I can, I can get it really fast. Well, you can use strong definition to start with. Ruin, okay. Okay, so to destroy, to perish, to spoil, to cast off, to corrupt. 
All right? If we look at outline of biblical usage to destroy, corrupt, go to ruin, decay, be marred, be spoiled, corrupted, you get the idea. They're going to be what? They're going to be ruined. They're going to be destroyed. And how is, it, and what, how is this going to happen? Well, God's going to be the directing force to do it, but obviously we know historically it's going to be the Babylonians, right? It's going to be the Babylonians. So that's all of that. So in a roundabout way, then, he puts on the garment, right? The garment is close to Jeremiah, and then the garment's taken off, it's placed somewhere, and it is destroyed, right? Meaning, almost, that you could almost make an argument, I think it's somewhat fair, that as that garment, because most believe it was a priestly garment, right? It, it belonged to the priest. That this garment was supposed to be sanctified and holy to God, like the priests were to be sanctified and set apart and holy to God. This nation was to be sanctified and set apart to God, supposed to be close to God. That symbolizes him wearing it. But ultimately, it was going to be taken off and removed, separated, hid, marred, destroyed. That's the general principle, yes? All right, what does it say? This, verse 10, this people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their own heart, walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. Get the idea? All right. Now I'm just going to read from one commentary just to summarize this paragraph, and then I'm going to share what someone, uh, uh, some uh, a listener sent to me. I think is it what Steve? Steve is it Stephen? I can't remember. It's I don't remember his name. I'd have to look up the email. But someone sent this to me. All right, here we go. Here is the uh, what one commentary says. Uh, this was one of Jeremiah's action sermons. Remember, we want to call them object lessons. Uh, the waist cloth was a thigh-length undergarment worn next to the skin. God had brought the nation close to himself, but they had defiled themselves with idols and become good for nothing. When the people saw Jeremiah bury his new garment under a rock in the muddy river, they knew it would ruin the garment, but they didn't realize they were p- passing judgment on themselves. Now, we don't know exactly how it all played out. They kind of add a little picture there that everyone saw. We don't know if everyone saw or not. So we would assume it was an object lesson, but we would have to make some assumptions there. Um, God would one day take Judah to Babylon, and there he would humble the Judaites and cure them of their idolatry. The city and temple that they were proud of would be ruined just as the prophet's garments had been ruined. But something else was involved in this sermon. For years, the leader of Judah had turned to Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon for help instead of turning to the Lord. And this help had only defiled them and made them good for nothing in God's sight. Jeremiah was showing them that their flirting with the pagan nation was only alienating them for, for them further from the Lord and that it would ultimately end in national ruin. All right? So, th- uh, I think that pretty much summarizes it pretty good. Would everyone agree? Okay, now I'm going to read this uh, section from an email. I'm trying to figure out uh, if I can find it. Scott, that's who sent this to me. Scott, okay, here we go. This is what Scott said. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah part 31 is interesting because a point that jumped out at me wasn't mentioned. 
so many nuances to the book. The go to the Euphrates part, they have it with an exclamation mark. The commentary you read said the others in Judah would see Jeremiah bury the loincloth. Jeremiah was in Judah and went hundreds of miles north. That would be like someone in Abilene going to the Mississippi River. I've been trying to look up any place, uh, any place name in the book on a map. I've seen a lot of strange and interesting things in the book doing that. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, two places mentioned, the coast of Cyprus, Gaza, and Kedar, won't abandon their own gods, and both places have prophecies of their destruction later in the book. How much more for Judah seems to be the point. So with the trip to the Euphrates, the message seems to be that Jeremiah is going to go through enemy territory, the enemy which is going to conquer Judah if they don't listen. He would have to go north through Damascus, territory that had already been conquered by the Assyrians, and maybe Babylon, depending on the chronology of chapter 13. Like Since we don't know exactly where chapter 13 falls in, for him to go where he was to the Euphrates would possibly take him through these areas, which would demonstrate where is Judah going? Well, they're going to go to <laughs> they're going to go to Babylon, right? Okay. So um, I thought that that was interesting. I had not given it much thought uh, because I was trying to focus on the main point. But after we get the main point, it's good to look at that, right? Where is he told to go bury it? That's interesting to know. Why did why was he sent to go to the Euphrates? Right. So I got no problem asking those questions, and we should. And at times we should dig into that. But what can we not forget? Whether we ever know why he was sent to the Euphrates or not, we do know this. It was to picture that who was going to be led away? Judah, because they were the garment that was supposed to be close, in a sense, used by God as a nation to represent him. They had, they had so corrupted themselves that they were going to be carried away, in a sense, hidden away, right? Just like he hid it. He hid the garment. They're going to be hidden away. They're going to be where? And captive. No, you know, where's Judah? No, there's Babylon. Judah just happens to be there, right? Where's the garment? Under a rock near the Euphrates, or in the Euphrates, depending on some of the translations, right? So I just think that that's very interesting. I, I, I had not had given it much thought because I was focusing on the main point, but that leads us then to the next point. If that's the story of the girdle or the uh, garment, then what do we do with verses 12 through 14? Everybody ready? Here we go. Therefore, now it's interesting that therefore seems to be based like, hey, uh, look at verse 11. What's the last part? They would not hear. Now, do we, now there's a lot of ways we can understand this. Is he just saying in general they would not hear or they would not hear that object lesson? Because then it says, therefore, right? Okay. So whatever the therefore is therefore, clearly a new object lesson is needed, right? Therefore, thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? 
Then thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord, I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but destroy them. All right, now, look at that carefully. We got the object lessons, right? It refers to these bottles. The bottles then would kind of represent whom? Well, the text doesn't, the text... All the inhabitants of the land. So the bottles represent Judah. They're all going to be filled. What are they going to be filled with? Wine. What happens when you're filled with wine? Okay, Stacy's the only one obviously used to drinking. Okay, because she was quick to tell us what happens when you get filled with wine. The rest of you obviously don't drink. Okay, all right. But the image is they're completely filled with wine, and therefore that leads to drunkenness. All right, that leads to drunkenness, all right? Now, once you're drunk, what happens? Or at least, how does he use the image of drunkenness to show what's going to happen? It's right there in the text. Right. They're going to start fighting with one another. What else? Come on, give me all the descriptive language used in the text. It's right there. Open book, open book, open book. Right. But it's kind of basically like they're doing what? They're fighting, stumbling. They're just what? What happens when you're drunk? Okay. Well, no proper judgment, no focus on what they're supposed to do. It's all the problems that come with it, right? He's using it to kind of describe it that way. All right? I'm going to read two commentaries so that we see if we can go with this idea, right? Jeremiah used a familiar proverb As his text is the argument, they claim he's possibly using Proverbs 13, or I'm saying they don't give the actual text, I don't think. Um, They have it in, uh, in, hang on, let me make sure. I don't want to say. No, let's let's not use that one, no. Uh, I think they're still quoting from, they're saying that what he's doing here is he's using a familiar proverb as his text, and the proverb, they don't give the reference, is every wineskin shall be filled with wine. Every wine should be filled with wine. I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't know if you can say he's using a proverb there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know about that. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of saying that, but okay. But listen, the proverb expresses the assurance that there will be peace and prosperity for the nation, not, not unlike the American proverb, a chicken in every pot. With a broken heart, the prophets saw the leaders getting drunk when they should have been soberly seeking the Lord. And he knew that a cup of wrath was about to be poured out on the land. Now, I've got a couple of problems here with the commentary. Now, the reason I use the commentaries is because we get what? Different perspective. That's, that's why. Remember, I like to do that. Right? I, love, I love to grab a commentary so that we're going to like, this is the direction they go, and then I typically do what? Go my other direction, okay? Which, uh, but that's okay. He 
is describing this, that typically that, that statement that I will fill every wineskin or fill every wineskin should be filled with wine. Every wineskin should be filled with wine. He's saying that that's typically a positive thing, right? Showing that you're going to get blessing and you're going to have everything you need, like a chicken in every pot. Okay, I don't know if he's even referencing that. But then he says to Jeremiah, is almost saddened. Is, it, is his exact word is sad? What was his exact word? With a broken heart. The prophet saw the leaders getting drunk. So the picture is, Jeremiah looks and is like, Oh, they're getting drunk. Now, look at the text. Who's, who's doing the action? Right. So is, is Jeremiah just going, oh, what are you people doing? You're getting drunk. Or is God basically saying, I'm going to get them drunk. Now, when he says get them drunk, is he speaking of a, fig, a literal dr- drunkenness here? I don't think so. In other words, he's just going to do what? He's basically giving them over to themselves, right? Now, again, this is the, this is the not, you know, million dollar question in theology that churches don't like to deal with. But we always have a hard time asking ourselves, how involved is God in someone's sin? How involved is God in someone's, is God in someone's repentance? Now, we know Christianity is radically divided on these issues, right? When it comes to our repentance and our believing, what are the two major systems on on God's involvement with those two things? He either, well, the people who say he isn't will act like that he is, and sometimes the people who say that he is will act like that he isn't because everyone struggles with this. Everyone understands the philosophical problems with this, right? If you say God is the one who grants repentance and God is the one who grants faith, then the question would be, why not everyone? And even, and even, if, you, even if you remove it from salvation, but if you say God is involved in, if Bobby's committing some horrible sin, God is the one who gives him repentance, well then if Bobby is not repenting over a sin, whose fault is it? You can't say it's Bobby if God is the one who gives repentance. Do you see how troubling that is? So we don't like that. We're like, no, no, no. We got to get God off the hook. So then we say, it's all Bobby. But the minute we say it's all Bobby who believes or Bobby is the one who repents, then we have to then almost immediately do what? We have to say Bobby doesn't have a sinful Nature, which then you have to go to Pelagianism. And if you go to Pelagianism, then you have to believe that Bobby can be perfect even without God. All right? There's all kinds of problems with that. All right? There's all kinds of problems. But so when it comes to this, okay, how, how, I mean, I'm sorry, I mean, everyone should know these things. I mean, this is like, a, this is like, the, the, if you want to talk about the philosophical, theological issues with Christianity, I just outlined them. Is God involved or not involved? If you say God is involved, everyone should be like, oh boy, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Right, what do I do? And if you get God off the hook, that sounds good, but then why pray for anybody? Hey, could you pray for so-and-so's repentance? Could you pray for so-and-so in salvation? 
Well, do you believe God is the one involved in that? Well, no. Well, then there's no point in praying for him. God can't do anything. And if God can do anything, then it's God. And if it's God, I mean, that is, you don't even understand the, the, the problems that that involves. I mean, those have practical ramifications. So who's responsible for get them getting drunk? The commentary wants to blame whom? The people. The text seems to blame God. I will fill them, right? Exactly. The text seems to blame God. But even so, is that God giving them the rebellion? I mean, no matter which direction you go. Yeah, I, I am not saying that the drunkenness is a literal drunkenness, but I'm just saying no matter the, how, how God's involved in something is very problematic to figure out, right? Because you see, I mean, look, it's all great when we're talking about Israel. We're going to say, well, you, because typically how it's preached, it's Israel's fault, right? Israel, Israel, they're no good. What is wrong with them? Okay, but then you're like, well, wait a minute. If God's the one who grants them repentance and faith, why didn't God just give them repentance and faith and could avoid the problem 30 seconds after? Hey, they left Egypt. They started acting the fool. And God was like, boom, I grant you repentance. I give you a new heart. Boom, you're good to go. He, he doesn't do that. So then you're like, well, why didn't he do that? By not doing that, what happened? I mean, think about the ramifications of what we are about to say. Because he did not grant them repentance, what did it lead to? Oh, way before their captivity. All the people who died in the wilderness. That's a lot of people who died. Right? Could he not have given them the faith to believe? Now see, but one theology will say, no, 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 no. That was on them. You see, it raises serious, and these are the questions nobody in church wants to ever talk about. Because look, I, is it uncomfortable? Yeah, let's look. I, I got no problem to say that. And people, some people will kind of get mad and want to, uh, but I'm not, I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm saying that these are the realities we have to deal with. When I read this, I'm like, well, wait a minute. The commentary said who? That Jeremiah was sitting back going, oh, this is so sad. But the text says, the text says God told him, look at the text. I do, I'm doing it, right? I'm doing it. I'm doing it. That's troubling to me, right? That's trouble. God, don't make them drunk, make them sober. The God that can make them drunk, you think would be the God that could sober them up and make them go, hey guys, let's obey so that we will not go into captivity. But God doesn't grant them, it seems, that repentance or that faith. And if he doesn't grant them that repentance or that faith, then it seems to, to suggest what very uncomfortable theological truth. Well, he'll have mercy in whom he will have mercy, but somehow sin is somehow a part of the plan. And obviously it ha- we, we can't say it's not part of the plan because then you would have God who lost control of the plot, Right? Hey, I never thought, I never wanted sin here. Well, then God knew before he created anyone that sin was, in fact, he created the very being that would bring sin into the world. 
yeah, so I, I, how do you, I don't know how you struggle with that. I struggle with it every single day trying to figure that out. Every single day, I'm like, what, what are you doing? And here's just a very practical. So let's, again, I want to read this again. He, they claim Jeremiah used a familiar proverb. Every wineskin shall be filled with wine. Um, the proverb expresses the assurance that there, will be, there, that there will be peace and prosperity for the nation, not unlike the American proverb, a chicken in every pot. With a broken heart, the prophet saw the leaders getting drunk when they, when they should have been soberly seeking the Lord. And he knew that a cup of wrath was about to be poured out on the land. The leaders and the people of Jerusalem were fill, filling their jars with wine, prepare, preparing for a party, but God would fill them with a drunkenness that would lead to shameful defeat and painful destruction. So I guess what he's saying is they're trying, they're trying to draw a parallel here, that the people were filling themselves with drunkenness, and then God was going to fill them with a different kind of drunkenness. You look at the text. Do you see a distinction between the two kind? You look at the text. I don't know. All right? That would lead to shameful defeat and destruction. They would crash into one another and destroy one another like clay pots smashed in a siege. Paul used the image of drunkenness to admonish the church to be ready for the Lord's return. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians, but we're not going to apply that here right now. Okay? So, I don't know. When you look at the text, who's the singular person doing the action? God. Would everyone agree? They, what they are trying to do is try to split it. The people were running around partying, getting drunk, and then God's like, okay, okay do you want to get drunk? I'll get you drunk. I'm going to get you drunk with basically wrath and destruction. But that's not quite the way the text reads. Now, that's why when you read commentaries, you always have to be doing what? Looking back at the text, all right? So let's read the text again. I'm going to read it in a different translation. Here we go. Say this to them is how this translation reads. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Every jar should be filled with wine. Then they will respond to you. Don't we know that every jar should be filled with wine? And you will say to them, this is what the Lord says. I am about to fill all who live in the land, the kings who reign for David on his throne, the priests and the prophets and all the residents of Jerusalem with drunkenness. Now, the way that one reads is it, it's possible the way this one reads seems to kind of clear it up, maybe a little more than King James, because it says, say to them, this is what the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, every jar should be filled. They will respond, don't we know that every jar should be filled? The way that's translated Meaning that when, when, they, when he says this to them, they, they are obviously familiar with the phrase and thinks, well, of course we know every jar is going to be filled. Obviously, possibly, remember the commentary said that they may have assumed that there was, this was like there's going to be a, chick, a chicken in every pot. Meaning that they may have thought that this is referring to God's blessings upon them. Of course everything's going to be good. But then God says What? I will fill all the inhabitants, right? Okay. Um, oh, uh, I am about to fill all who live in this land, the kings who reign, for, uh, who reign for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the residents of Jerusalem with drunkenness. I will smash them against each other, fathers and sons alike. This is the Lord's declaration. I will, I will allow no mercy, pity, or compassion to keep them from destroying them. Right? So there's still there's not two different kinds of drunkenness going on. 
He may have been using a phrase that they were like, well, of course we're going to be filled, right? We're going to be filled with nothing but good things. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're going to be filled with a drunkenness that will destroy you. And God seems to be saying he's going to be the one doing it. Now, in this particular case, if the drunkenness simply represents the judgment, well, then it is God carrying out the judgment. If the drunkenness represents their sinfulness, well, then then you have the struggle of how much God is involved or not involved. I think it's probably best here to maybe just refer to the drunkenness as the judgment that's going to be brought upon them. But God is directly involved in the judgment. But it still raises the question, does God grant repentance? And if God's the one who grants repentance, then why not just grant them repentance instead of judgment? Does that make sense? Still raises the same problem, all right? Now, go to the next one. That's what happens in verse 15. Go back to my other Bible. Verse 15 is the next one, right? Okay. Hear ye and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before, uh, before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon dark mountains. And while you look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Right? And uh, that's where we stopped it, right? Verse 16. All right. So in verse 15 and 16, what do we have here? We call this the stumbling traveler, right? What does he warn them of? Okay. Be not proud. Give glory to God before what? Once again, who's the one doing it? One, it's God's actions, God's action. He's going to cause possibly what to come on them? Darkness, so they cannot see. And what happens when you cannot see? You stumble, you trip, you fall, Right? God's saying, hey, I'm going to bring darkness, so you're going to stop. Once again, who's bringing it? Now, again, if we leave it just to the judgment, it is a little bit philosophically easy, easier to handle, right? Because we're just like, well, God, God's going to just, he's just bringing drunkenness, and the stumbling is just God. That's a little bit easier. But it still raises the question, how involved is God with sin and with repentance? And if he's the one granting the repentance, why wouldn't you just grant them repentance and stop the entire situation? And so many would just say, well, repentance is something we do. Well, if it's something we do, then you see all of the problems we've already now outlined multiple times, all right? Here's how this commentary handles it. Everybody ready? When Jeremiah called to the people, hear ye and give ear, he was giving them opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. Now, that's great. It's great when he gives them opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. What's the question? When God gives you an opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord, what is the ultimate theological question to that statement? What is the ultimate question whenever we hear the phrase that God has given someone an opportunity to repent? Who get, who, who grants or how does repentance occur? We're right back to the question we just covered, right? It's great. God, God has given people a chance to repent. Wonderful. Can you repent on your own? If the answer is yes, then you do not have a sinful nature. If the answer is no, and God is the one granting the repentance, then the question is, why would God not just grant 
repentance. And even if he say he grants repentance, why does he wait so long in some case to grant the repentance? Right? It, let's just use David. Why did he wait so long for David to be granted repentance? Right? Okay? Does everybody, everybody see that? All right, so let me read it again. When Jeremiah called the people, hear ye and give ear, pay attention, he was giving them an opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. He compared them to a traveler on an unfamiliar and dangerous mountain trail without a map and without a light, hoping for, for, uh, for the dawn. Instead of the light dawning, however, the darkness only deepens. And centuries past, God has led his people by pillars of cloud and fire. Now he wants to lead them through the words of his prophet, but the people wouldn't follow. If we reject, and let's be very f- fair, they didn't really follow the other way either, did they? Let's be fair. The, pi- the pillar of, the, okay, let me read this again. Let me read this again, all right? He was giving them an opportunity to repent and turn to the Lord. He compared them to a traveler on an unfamiliar and dangerous mountain trail without a map and without light, hoping for the dawn. Instead of the light dawning, however, the darkness only deepens. In centuries past, he had led his people by pillars of cloud and fire. Now he wanted to lead them through the words of the prophet, but the people would not follow. Now let me ask again, did they follow the pillar of cloud and fire? Externally maybe, but internally they grumbled and complained everywhere they went and constantly wanted to go back where? And when they were going to be led into the promised land, they said, nope. So they didn't even follow that. Meaning, even if God is leading us with a physical manifestation, we still will not follow. Even if God is leading us through the words of a prophet, we still will not follow. And even if he's leading us through his written word, we will still not follow because there's something inherently in us that will not follow God, and that is our sinful nature. And so for, for in any way where we appear to be following, there's always a part where we aren't following. Nobody likes that, but it's a reality. All right? Uh, The leaders, um, you see, it it says this, if we reject God's light, nothing remains but darkness. Now, I can't stand that because that's such an either or. If we reject God's light, all that remains is darkness. That preaches good. But we constantly reject God's light. That means that we're all completely always in darkness. That's such an either. It's not that black and white, is it? Should we reject God's light? No. Whenever we reject God's light, does it lead to darkness? Yes. But we're always in kind of a middle, right? Because sometimes we hear God's light or go to follow it. Sometimes we don't. We're, there, we're never, it's never black and white. Christians love to paint everything like, when you become a Christian, everything is light, everything is perfect, everything is wonderful. I mean, I mean, I mean, not perfect. We'll throw in a little bit but we always preach it like it's this way. And it's not that, I wish, I, w- I wish it was that way. Yeah. The, the leaders were too proud to admit that they were lost and they wouldn't ask for directions. Wow, must have been women leading that mess. Okay, all right. All right. Okay, that, that, yeah, I don't, okay. 
I guess not. I guess everybody thinks it's men who don't ask for directions. The point is, though, they have problems here, yes? Okay? They have problems here. Okay? All right, now, let's see if we can... I know we, were, we started late so because now we're talking too much. So we, we're going to finish this. We're going to finish this. Okay. All right. So we, we, get, we get the image there. We get the picture. Okay. Hey, you're proud. You're arrogant. You shouldn't be that way. You should give glory to God. And what's getting ready to happen to them? Darkness. They're going to stumble and fall. And why are they going to stumble? And with that darkness is basically going to be whom? The Babylonians. Okay. All right. But... Who's going to cause it? God. Meaning God is, again, in charge of the entire situation. Which, on one hand, it's a good thing. We're like, and it's so great to believe in God's sovereignty? On the other hand, is it not the most disturbing thing to ever think of ever in your life? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, is it not? Because sometimes you're like, whew, I'm so thankful God's in charge of this because I, I, I don't have to feel responsible for that problem or that problem or that problem. On the other hand, you're like, well, wait a minute. If God is sovereign, God can fix that problem. Wait, God can fix my problem. Wait, God can fix all of your problems. Okay, but okay. So yeah, it's, it's a double-edged sword. All right, what's next? <laughs> right. Well, true, true. And one sense... In one sense, you're right. We don't have any problems because even if I do fall or sin, it's all paid for and it's all covered. So you're right. There's kind of like a, there's another double-edged sword there. Okay. All right. What's next after, that was the stumbling traveler. And now we have the flock, do we not? Okay. All right. That starts in verse 17. All right. But if you will not, if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Now, who seems to be speaking there in 17? Yeah, don't you believe that makes sense? That's, that's Jeremiah. Bobby is dogmatic. Everybody else is silent. Yeah. Uh-oh, we have disagreements here. Okay. Well, what would make you think it's God? God's, God's soul is weeping in secret places. His eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Why would he say the Lord's flock? He would say my flock is carried away captive, right? Right. Okay, are we sure? Okay, you scare me there. Okay, I was, I was, I, I was just making sure. Yeah, I kind of got quiet there for a second. Yeah, scared me for a second. Okay. Does the NIV say something that would say different? Okay. All right. Are we good? Are we sure? Okay. I want to make sure. Okay. So I think that's Jeremiah. Now I'm willing, if, you know, if anybody thinks differently, I'm more than willing to hear it. But when I, when I read, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive, that's clearly Jeremiah speaking. All right. And Jeremiah is, but if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. My eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. This is Jeremiah broken over the situation, right? He's upset. He doesn't understand what's going on. Right? And then what happens in verse uh, 18? 
Say unto the kings and to the queen, humble yourselves, sit down, for your principality shall come down in the crown of your glory. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing because that sounds like who is talking now? What do we think? All of a sudden, y'all got quiet again. Oh, okay, now we think it's, it's back to Jeremiah. <laughs> All right, this is the fun part of the prophets. The fun part of the prophets is trying to figure out who's speaking. And what I love about this is it demonstrates that even something as simple as figuring out who is talking can be a source of disagreement. That's why when any times people claim the Bible is clear, drives me crazy. If it was clear, we would always know who's talking, okay? What do we think? If we have disagreement, it's okay. It's okay. I, 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 I'm willing to listen to all your theories. Very good. Very good. Right. God is Because this would obviously be God telling him. 17 is the one that seems out of place, is it not? 17 is like, what is going on here? Right? But if you will, uh, if you will not hear it, and, and, not, and once again, but if you will not hear it, he doesn't say if you will not hear me, right? Okay, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears. That just sounds very human and not, uh, now I know sometimes the Bible can use human language to describe, but, and then because the Lord's flock is carried away, that makes no sense if God is talking. He wouldn't say because the Lord's flock, he would say because of my flock, all right? So I think 17 is clearly Jeremiah. Right? Verse 18, say unto the kings and to the queen, humble yourselves, sit down for your principalities, shall come down, even the crown of your glory. That has to be Jeremiah, because who's Jeremiah telling to go speak? I mean, that has to be God, because I mean, if it's, if it's Jeremiah, who's he telling to go speak? Okay, so say unto the kings, verse 19, the cities of the south shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Lift up mine eyes. Behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? What will thou say when, when uh, he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains. And as chief over thee shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail. But we'll stop in uh, 20. We have to at least finish this. It's 8.05. So the, the issue here is this is the flock, Right? And what's going to happen to the flock? They're going to be taken away. So let's let's do this. If you stumble or disagree over who's speaking, let's set aside those struggles and get the basic picture. Judah is being described as a flock, and what's going to happen to the flock? They're going to be carried away captive. All right. It's another way of describing it, and I'll just read this, and it will end. Jeremiah wept as he saw the Lord's flock being taken captive, defenseless sheep uh, heading for the slaughter. What caused this great tragedy? The shepherds, rulers of of Judah, selfishly exploited the sheep and refused to obey the word of the Lord. Jeremiah spake to King uh, Jehoiakim and uh, Nahushtah, the queen mother, and admonished them to repent and humble themselves. But they refused to listen. Babylon would swoop down from the north and the nation would be ruined. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. All right. 
And so the flock is going to be taken away. So what are the object lessons we looked at tonight? Number one, the garment. The garment represents Judah. They're going to be removed from God, taken off. They're going to be hidden away in captivity, right? And they're going to be marred, ruined, and destroyed. Okay, they're going to be made, yeah, yeah, they're going to be useless in that time, all right? The second object lesson, bottles. They're going to be filled with drunkenness, right? And the drunkenness here, I think it's best to understand the drunkenness is not as a literal drunkenness, but they're going to be filled with judgment, right, judgment. And that judgment's coming from? The Babylonians. Now, in case God is the one involved with this, which raises those deeper theological questions that we kind of took a little detour to look at. We could have avoided those, but they have to constantly be brought up because, I, because the commentary tried to kind of get God out of the picture. But clearly, God is the one doing this, right? Okay, next. The stumbling traveler. Yeah, the stumbling traveler, right? Hey, because of their pride and their arrogance and not glorying God, God's going to bring dark, darkness and they're going to stumble. What's the darkness represent? The coming Babylonian captivity, right? They're coming, God's going to bring judgment. And then next, the flock. And they're going to be carried away, again, by the Babylonians. All of these object lessons say one basic message, and that is judgment is coming. And who's in charge of the entire situation? God. God is guiding and directing. And that only leaves us a couple of more, and we'll, we won't finish them tonight, but there we go. We've got the woman, we've got the leopard, we got the uh, skirts, and we got the chaff, and we got the nudity. So we only have a couple more left. And guess what? They're all going to say, the exact same thing. <laughs> They're going to say the exact same thing. And you can be like, well, I'm tired of hearing the exact same thing. Well, God's not tired of saying the exact same thing. So then we shouldn't be tired of hearing it because it demonstrates God's sovereignty and God hates hatred of sin. All right? And what was their only hope? And what God was going to do for them, not what they could do for themselves. Their hope was in something other than the law. And what is our hope? And something other than the law. God does for us. And whenever we talk about what God does for us, that is called gospel. And whenever we see scripture that says what you must do, that is law. And does law ever, does it ever save? No. Does it ever bring hope? Does it ever bring peace? And can it ever be used to judge someone's salvation? No. And the fact that Christians use law to judge someone's salvation demonstrates that Catholics won, not Luther. Because Luther said that was the whole problem. The law has nothing to do with your justification. Whatever law demands, what can, if someone comes to Bobby and says, hey, here's the 13 things you have to do to prove you're saved, what should Bobby say? It's all done for me in Christ. And people will accuse Bobby immediately of being an antinomian. Unfortunately, that's the way it works because they learned a word and they think that that's the answer to everything, right? <laughs> but... but they're, they're, and so if, if you're, I would rather be an antinomian 
than a Catholic. I would rather be an antinomian than turn the gospel of grace into law because that means we no longer have a gospel and that means we're all going to go to hell. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Very important concepts. I pray that we would see their continual cycle of rebellion and sin and be confronted with our own cycle of rebellion and sin and realize our only hope is not trying harder, not doing more, but running to Christ and humbly acknowledging our failure and accepting the finished work of Christ. And we ask that people would do that very thing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...